I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette and I'm Ellen and today we're talking to Owen O'Kane. He's worked for the NHS for over 25 years, he's a therapist, he's the best-selling author of 10 to Zen and now he has a new book out called 10 Times Happier and it's basically about all the ways that we screw ourselves over when we're trying to be happier. So he's going to tell us basically how to boost our mood and be happier even when the world is perhaps not so peachy. Ten times happier came out. Um, came out actually just in, as we went into lockdown, so that that was quite interesting because obviously when I sat down to write a book on happiness, um, I hadn't planned the lockdown or a pandemic, so it's it, it's been a really interesting book launch for me. But the interesting thing, actually, everything in the book is completely relevant to where we're at, really, and and essentially, really. It, it's not a book about happiness in the kind of fluffy fairy dust way. It's really about how people can take more control of their lives, how they can manage their thoughts, their mind, their anxiety, uncertainty better, and essentially lead a happier life. So it's not about a perfect life. It's just about um, feeling more comfortable in your own shoes, really, and navigating life in a way that's more effective. So really, to be honest, it's a book for anyone. It's not, you know, I don't think there's a, a particular group that will benefit more from this group. I think any human being who knows what it's like to struggle with anxiety, uncertainty, or having a tough time every now and then, I think will benefit from the book. Can you tell us a bit about your background in terms of the NHS and the work you did there, please? Yeah, sure. So I was a clinical lead for mental health up until about a year and a half ago. Um, and then the books come out and that took my, my career in a different direction, um, doing lots of other stuff around mental health. But essentially, I had a ran quite a large team so I think there were about 90 95 100 people on the team and my role as clinical lead was just to make sure really that the entire team were supported 
that clinical services were being offered appropriately, that we were managing our wait lists well, and that we were delivering effective therapeutic treatments for people struggling with depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, basically all of the disorders. Um, it was a tough job. It was a, it was a big gig. There was a lot to do, but that was um, that was my most recent NHS job. And my career was split in two. The first half of my career um, was in health and I was a palliative care specialist. So I worked with people who were terminally ill for 10 years and then I retrained as a psychotherapist and that brought my career off in a different direction. So often when I talk about mental well-being, um, I talk about it really from a, a mental health perspective and my obviously my psychology training, but I also base it on my experience of working with people who were facing a life-threatening illness and, and how that impacted their life and how they how they functioned and how they coped. What did you kind of learn from that experience? Because I think that's really interesting that you're talking about kind of spending such intense time with people kind of at the later stage of their life. What did you learn from that? I think, I mean, it, it kind of changed how I saw the world, really, and it changed mm-hmm. how, how I was as a human being. And I suppose, really, when you spend a lot of time with people and their families who are dealing with a life-threatening, and a life, you know, obviously a life-limiting illness, um, the one thing I was very conscious of that people coped and dealt with life in a very, very different way. And I suppose really the key thing was that I often saw people review their perspective on life. And they would often have conversations with me about if they had more time, things they would do differently, um, how they would change relationships in their life, how they wouldn't spend as much time worrying about stuff that didn't matter, how they would devote less time to work. So it was a really, really interesting it was a really interesting period for me, really, because the things I would worry about and I thought were problems suddenly didn't seem that big a problem anymore. So I think ultimately it was a real privilege, actually, those 10 years were, I think I learned most actually in those 10 years of my career about valuing life, really, and managing the uncertainty of life, because all of these people had to manage enormous uncertainty, and it taught me a lot about how to do that. So what made you um, decide to specialising in mental health? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when I was in that line of work, it was a very medicalized model. And obviously we had medications, drugs, treatment protocols, but I often felt that most people I dealt with, whether that was a patient or the family, had really significant psychological distress. And very often I didn't feel fully equipped to deal with that. And I thought, I'm going to go off and retrain um, as a psychotherapist to become more skilled and better able to do that. So that was the beginning, really, of the motivation to retrain. And then, of course, I became really enthusiastic and interested in the world of psychology and the mind. And that brought my career. I mean, to be honest, I think 10 years working in terminal care was probably enough for me. And then when I went off to retrain as a psychotherapist, that brought my career off in a different direction. So essentially, it's been split in two. Half of my career has been physical health. Half of my career has been mental health. And I think it's a great place for me to be because I have the expertise in both worlds, which means I can use that in my clinical work. Could you talk to us a bit about your kind of personal experience of mental health? Have you always, I don't know how to put this in a in like a delicate way, have you always been kind of like mentally healthy in a good place or have you been through tough times? That's a good question as well. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I, I, I see mental health very differently. I think that you know, I, I was talking to someone recently about the statistic one in four. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that's a really, you know, it's an odd statistic that because, you know, just like we all have physical health, I believe 
100% of us all, we all have mental health. Um, and it depends how you define it. But of course, there are periods in life when I might feel more anxious than normal. Or there are periods in life when I might feel a bit flatter than normal. But I think that's true of most of the population. And I think I think a diagnosis sometimes can be really, really helpful, particularly if somebody's mm. got a really acute psychiatric disorder. But I also think we have to start talking more about the fact that there are times when we might be a bit anxious or we might be a bit flat. And that doesn't mean that we have a, a mental health problem. It just means that we're a human being who might struggle from time to time. Just like we get a flu or get a cold, I think we we have to start thinking about our mental wellness in that way, that there will be variations in it. So to answer your question, um, I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles when there was a lot of riots and bombs. And interestingly for me, I didn't realise that I was anxious until I left there. Um, and I think sometimes when you step away from a situation, you realise that you're hardwired to, to be aware of threat or danger. And when I moved to London, I suddenly realised that a car would backfire and it would make me jump. Mm. And my friends would look at me and think, why have you jumped? So I was kind of hardwired to be kind of primed for noise or loud bangs because that's what I grew up in. So I, I suppose really I have a firm understanding of what it is to be anxious. And I think, to be honest, as a clinician and in the work I do, I think you always have to be really truthful about your own story. Mm. Um, so, you know, I would say like every other human being on the planet, um, I can struggle at times, but I suppose in the line of work I do, I also know how to manage my anxiety or my emotions. And I suppose that's the great thing about doing this work. You become very skilled on how to manage yourself as well, which is important. Well, that's kind of my next question, which is how do you manage your anxiety? For, for me, really, it, it's a number of things. I don't think there's a single way of managing anxiety, and I think it varies for the individual. But the key thing I would say for anybody struggling with with anxiety if you look at if you look at a textbook definition of anxiety it's an intolerance of uncertainty so it's really really simple to me that if you're intolerant of uncertainty then you're going to struggle and i think the more you can tolerate uncertainty rather than work against it then almost immediately your anxiety levels drop a few notches and i think most people with their anxiety work hard to run away from it and get away from it when actually the the more you lean into your anxiety and be curious about it and see it as a positive thing, almost like a barometer trying to guide you, then I think you can use your anxiety helpfully. And I think that's the biggest problem. Most people become intimidated by their anxiety and they become frightened of them. And actually, it's your anxiety is coming up simply to try and remind you of a change or a tweak or something different that you need to do to get you back to your point of equilibrium. So I try and think of anxiety as a very useful thing to bring me back to a point of stability. And of course, I do all the normal stuff. I try to eat well because I think if we eat foods that are high in fat and sugar, it causes an inflammatory response in the body. So anxiety is very closely linked to inflammation. So what we don't want is an inflamed mind. So I think keeping an eye on your diet is important. All the research around exercise, I try to run three, four times a week. I think, you know, we know that when you exercise, you increase serotonin reuptake. That's mega helpful. And for me as well, I, you know, I'm a mindfulness teacher as well. And I practice mindfulness every day. If I don't meditate 10, 15 minutes every day, the quality of my day is different. So quite a few things. Yeah, and good, good range of things. A good range of things. And it varies in terms of how much time and effort I give them. I think I don't want to kind of give away everything in your book 
because obviously people should buy the book and read it. Exactly. (laughs) But could you give us some of the like a few of the takeaways from 10 Times Happier? What are kind of like, even if it's just one, one freebie lesson that we can take from it? One freebie lesson. I I suppose ultimately the motivation really behind the book was um, as a therapist, you know, most people come to therapy and the one thing they talk about is wanting to be happier. I think most clients I meet, when they come through the door, they will talk about just wanting to feel a bit happier. And when you sit down and you explore with them what that's about, very often they will will they will talk about a lot of stuff in their life that's difficult, you know, work, their family, their husband, their wife, things that have gone on in their past. People will always have an external reason why they're unhappy. And one of the things most people rarely talk about at the beginning of therapy is the role they play in their own unhappiness. And I suppose really... The book is built around 10 areas in which I see people get stuck over and over and over again. So I believe people often get in the way of their own happiness and they don't realize they're doing it. So, for example, one of the chapters is called Get Out of Your Head. So most people get very, very caught up in their thought patterns and they believe. So, for example, if you've got patterns that are critical or judgmental or harsh, people accept that thought pattern as a given and as a norm. And one of this chapter talks about helping people to identify what the unhelpful thinking patterns might be, um, not only to recognize them, but how do you break free from them? For example, so if you're self-critical, it's about helping people see how that gets in the way of their life and how, how they, they can then break that habit by realizing that there are alternatives. There are other ways of seeing life. There are other ways of responding. So really, it's a massive shift in perspective. That's one of the chapters. Um Another chapter is, well, two of the chapters, one of the chapters talks about not getting caught up in the past. And another chapter talks about not getting fixated on the future. And I think this is something I see a lot. People often, often get really stuck with the negative aspects of their past, or they get stuck with the worrisome parts of their future. And ultimately, breaking free of that, and as cliched as it might sound, but about coming into the here and now a lot more, realizing that the only thing most of us can control is how we respond today there's a real freedom that comes with that and it can really make an enormous difference to how people cope with their life is it realistic do you think um to say to people that you can just be happier sort of today yeah it was interesting for me when i was launching a book on happiness and it's, it's an interesting thing actually whether we're in a pandemic or not i mean we, we can almost be a bit apologetic about happiness, like it's a, a surreal concept. And I, I suppose, particularly in a the lockdown, there is a question about, my God, can we be happy in the lockdown? And I suppose the way I see it is that we, when you can't control what's going on in the external world, I mean, none of us have had any degree of control over what's been happening this year externally. So we can't, you know, we couldn't control the virus. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen next. But that doesn't mean that you that you have to be miserable within that. And the way I see it is that when you can't control what goes on in the external world, you then come inwards and think, okay, well, I can control how I respond to it and I can control how I'm going to deal with this. So, for example, to give you a personal example, I made a decision during lockdown that I would watch the news once a day because if I watched it any more than that, I realized that it had a detrimental impact on my mood. So just making that shift from thinking, okay, well, I can make a decision around that so that I'm not saturated with negative material. Likewise, negative people, you know, I can make decisions around that so that I suddenly don't become overwhelmed. And instead of watching the news at night, I'd watch a comedy. And I also made a decision that instead of focusing on all the catastrophizing that was going on, 
I was confident that some of the best people in the world were working towards a vaccine. So from day one, when I found out about the pandemic, I made a decision, okay, well, I'm confident that somewhere along the line, someone quickly will come up with a solution. Because if we look back in history, even though things have been dark and difficult at times, there's always a way through and there's always a breakthrough or resolution. So I suppose ultimately what I'm talking about is that you can you can be hopeful in tough times. And that in itself changes the chemistry of the brain. When you make a decision that you're going to opt into a more hopeful perspective, you produce more endorphins, you produce more encephalins. And of course, that changes your brain chemistry and reduces anxiety and improves mood. So, you know, there are ways of navigating your mood and your anxiety that you are in control of. And I think a lot of times people don't see that. I think one thing that's really difficult, and I might be speaking semi-personally, is um, sometimes you know exactly what you need to do to be happier. You know the things that are good for you, but then you just can't bring yourself to do them for some reason. I think that's very common among people with like depression and long-term mental illness. What, obviously difficult question, but how, how do you fix that? I mean, can I, would you, would you mind? I mean, can I ask you that? So you, you very truthfully and honestly said that (laughs) you recognize that you do that sometimes in your own life. So do, do you mind me asking? So you have the awareness that you're doing it. Do you mind me asking why you think you do it? Oh God. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to give you therapy or anything. No, I mean, I'd appreciate it. It's free free therapy is always good. Uh, why do I do it? I don't know, because there, there's lots of things that I know on a logical level would be good for my mental health, yeah. like exercising yeah. or like doing Pilates. I know I used to really enjoy that, but when it comes down to it, I will always be like, well, I don't have time or... I don't have the motivation to do that or like I'm feeling rubbish today. So I just, you know, we'll just stay in bed and do nothing. Yeah. Um, What what does the evidence tell you though? When you look back at times when you have gone to Pilates or done exercise, what does the evidence tell, tell you around a shift in your mood? Do you feel better when you do it? Yeah. That's why it's so weird. (laughs) Like makes very little sense because all the evidence is, yeah, that makes you feel better. And I know that. But then and what what holds us slash me back from doing the things that are good I, for us? I was us? nodding all through that, by the way, Alan, when you were saying it. Okay, good. It, it, it's a really big question. And, and this sometimes can be hard to hear. And I'm not saying, obviously, that this is personal to you. But I think what I see a lot of the time in clinical practice is that we can often become quite attached and mm. comfortable with the uncomfortable decisions that we make with our life. So, for example, I was talking to someone recently who has been struggling with anxiety and low mood for a long period of time. And we've been working really hard to, to move forward and get to a different place. And, and a few weeks ago, the person said to me, um, this is quite scary because you're bringing me to somewhere unfamiliar. At least my anxiety and my mood are familiar to me. Um, and there's predictability with that. And I think often that can happen where even though your rational brain knows it's a good thing to do, sometimes we can get stuck in patterns that we know are unhelpful but actually they're familiar and they're comfortable and actually they can feel safer than going somewhere new. So sometimes I think it's about the recognition that maybe we can all be attached to stuff that isn't necessarily good for us. And the courageous thing to do is to break free of that and to, to, to keep looking forward with the knowing that there's a better way. And, you know, the ultimate thing is, and, you know, my God, I've seen this a million times in my career, 
change is not easy. It's hard work. Mm-hmm. It takes discipline. It's really, really uncomfortable. And I think that's that. That's the thing about this. Most of our moving forward in life will make us really uncomfortable. And it's the ability to to endure the discomfort, but knowing that there, there's a way forward. And actually, you know, the payoff is way more beneficial and significant than staying with anxiety or depression. I mean, anybody listening today who struggles with anxiety or depression it's not a comfortable way to live. It's a really difficult existence to wake up feeling like you're in a battleground all of the time. And I think that it doesn't always have to be that way. There is a way forward. There's a way out, but it takes work and it takes discipline. And I think it's worth it in the end because, you know, when you suddenly get that freedom and you realize that there are there are other more po- positive adaptive things to attach to, then that's when change happens. It is a challenge though, isn't it? Because I mean, um, I've got bipolar disorder and it's sort of when I have depression I don't know that I might have the best intentions in the world to go for a run or do some singing or do some things like Selen was saying that I know actually will make me happier but really it's it's just a a, a brilliant thing to actually get out of bed and dress so absolutely and I think that's a really important point you're making that you know it's not about because I think often there's a danger of feeling that we have to do all of these things and if we don't that we failed and I Mm. think often it can be taken in small steps you know so it could be for example getting out of bed getting dressed and going for a walk around the block maybe maybe that's okay maybe that's enough for one day but I think it's always about being mindful that particularly with with any kind of mental health challenges that sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper and try and push ourselves, even if it's one step further than we'd normally do, that can have astronomical impact. Does that make, does that make sense? So it's a, you, you know, you may wake up feeling, okay, well, this is all I want to do today, but often it's not about the feeling of what we want to do. It's about having that insight and awareness to think, okay, well, I might just want to stay in bed today and I might want to do nothing. But actually, my challenges and what I know from experience is even if I do one or two things today outside of that norm or what the feeling, because a depressed brain will tell you to stay in bed. Mm. A depressed brain will say, what's the point? And it's always about kind of looking at the patterns. And, you know, we all know sometimes when we're going through tough periods, all of those voices in our heads, the critic, the judgment, the self-deprecation, all of that stuff will come in and say, why bother? What's the point? So it's about learning not to listen to that voice as a factual voice that, you know, remember that 60 to 70 percent of our thoughts are negative in nature. But that doesn't mean that that's the correct thing. So it's about not being managed by those thought patterns, but seeing them for what they are, which is unhelpful patterns and then breaking free and think, okay, I have a choice in what I do. Either I give into this and just go with it or I go a different direction. So, you know. There's often never quick fixes to these, but my, my argument is one small tweak a day can have enormous benefits longer term. So, you know, it's about it's about what you're comfortable with and what you can manage. But it's also about digging deeper sometimes to think, actually, maybe there's a little bit more I can give today. Obviously, it's not a one size fits all kind of solution but if you were to recommend kind of one tweak that everyone could do that will probably make them feel better what would that be i think i'd probably say there are two things i would say most people in my experience don't stop often enough most people get up and they just go they basically car crash through their day 
without taking mm. any moments to stop. And I think if you think of the brain, you know, the brain is an organ in your body, like any other organ in your body, and it will become tired and sometimes it won't function well and sometimes it will feel a bit depleted. So if you're not taking any time out to allow the mind time to rest and to quieten some of the noise and the activity that goes on there, then, of course, you're going to struggle. So my well, my two key pieces of advice would be that if you can just find time in your day, you know, in my first book, 10 to Zen, I talked about taking 10 minutes out of your day. That was the premise of the entire book. And I created a program around that. 10 minutes out of your day can be enough to kind of quieten a lot of the activity in the mind and get you back to your point of equilibrium and balance. So I would say take the 10 minutes out to stop. And the second thing is that the more you can become aware of your thought patterns and what they look like and what they sound like and replace that or begin to replace it with something different, then that's a massive, massive step forward. So they, they would be my two key tips just to get started. There's a lot more naturally, but I think that would be a really good starting point. I think my final question would be, um, what's the reaction been like to writing this book? I'm imagining that maybe your friends and like people you meet come to you and are just like, make me happy, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really interesting thing, really, because when you write a book on happiness, I think there is an expectation that um, that you're that you're going to be happy all the time or that mm. you've got the magic solution. And, of course, you know, when you sit down to read the book, it's a complete opposite, really. This book's a book about being human and the humanity of, of our happiness. So I think, you know, it, it's been interesting. My, my first book... Um, had an incredible response and you know I, I sat down to write that book and thought if it reaches 10 people great and we, we we sold that book into 15 different countries worldwide and I think that probably speaks volumes about the need for quiet and the need for people to find techniques and tools that help them the second book really is unapologetically about you know people even it's really interesting that we're having this conversation it's almost like we tiptoe around happiness like it's a bit of a surreal concept but we are not put on this earth to we're not put on the earth to be miserable i think we're, we're here whatever you believe spiritually or whatever your universal beliefs are i think we are here to live as full a life as we possibly can do and that's kind of what that's kind of what i try in my work to move people towards it's not it's not some kind of flaky um surreal you know like expectations that are way beyond the norm it's just about actually there's possibilities that you could be living much fuller than you currently are now and if the book and the chapters in the book help people unlock some of these areas and help them to become unstuck then I feel like I've done my job but I do believe 100% most people right across the board regardless of who they are can be happier than they are but often they don't realize it because they don't see that they're sabotaging aspects of their own well-being. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. If you've been affected by any of the things we've been chatting about today, give the Samaritans a ring. 
You can call them on 116-123 or you can find them online at samaritans.org. If you've liked today's episode, please give us a rate and review on iTunes and come join us on Facebook. We have a group called Mentally Yours and on Twitter we're Mentally Yours spelled Y-R-S. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.